Father, we look to you as our foundation and our hope. Lord, those who don't know you are lost without God in this world, aimless and creaming towards judgment. Yet you, Lord, in your mercy and grace, stooped low and rescued us in the state of our despair and our spiritual malignancy. You rescued and redeemed a people, Father, undeserving, by the merits not of anything ourselves, but of your steadfast love and your abiding mercy, your condescending grace, and your great sacrifice came for us. These are the things which gather us in your name today. Inspire us, Lord, to worship you, the foundation upon which our communion with Christ and one another is built. These days, Lord, there are very few, it would seem, in the world lost and dying, who know the true foundation of where a soul can be built, where eternity can be assured. I pray, no matter how dark this day may appear, that you would remind us that in times such as ours, the light of Christ shines all the brighter. Would you shine to us through your word today, and let us appreciate the light of your revelation from the pages of Scripture. And as a result of this message, would you shine through us as we seek to be a witness and testimony of the exclusive saving power of Jesus Christ, our Sovereign and Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you that you stooped low and condescended, that you were born of a woman, that you began this life as a baby in a manger, so that you might rule and reign with all the saints you've redeemed the right hand of the majesty on high, taking dominion over all your enemies, and claiming for yourself a people at the cost of your blood to worship you forever and ever without end. Glorify you and praise you this day. Pray that you would be magnified in this worship service, in the giving and hearing of the word, by the power and enabling of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Praise the Lord for His faithfulness to us in gathering us as saints, few as though we may be. We pray for those who cannot make it to the assembly due to illness, that they might be able to rejoin us swiftly even next week by the grace of God. In the meantime, let us turn our heart and attention to the Word of God found in Genesis 41, the second portion of the chapter, verses 45 through 57. Here in our Genesis series, we continue to mark the progress of God's purposes through his son Joseph as he assumes second in command and is delegated with the authority of the signet ring, garments, gold chains, second chariot of Pharaoh to rule on his behalf in regards to the catastrophe of famine that's coming. Well, more so than any or all of these, Joseph is equipped for this task by the very Spirit of God. With that introduction and your heart open, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? Let us consider out of reverence the holy word of God. Genesis 41, 45 through 57. Here is the holy word. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. 52. The second, the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was a famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. 
When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt of Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is A Spirit-Filled Statesman. And the aim of my preaching today is to witness the Spirit of God in the exaltation, in the reign, even in the coronation of Joseph. Where is the Spirit of God evidenced in the reign of Joseph? After all, the Spirit of God was recognized even by a pagan king a few verses before. Turning back in Genesis 41, 37, we read the following. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. What proposal would that be? Both the interpretation and the wise counsel that Joseph offered in the wake of Pharaoh's double dream of the, sheep, or of the uh, ears of wheat as well as the cattle. The emaciated uh, cows and so forth consuming the plump ones, likewise with the wheat. The interpretation was seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, which demanded a policy to wisely steward the resources to be prepared for the catastrophe to come. So in verse 38, Pharaoh reacts to this information. And he says to his servants, quote, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So we recognize that Pharaoh himself had witnessed the Spirit of God abiding in this servant, Joseph. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Ruach of Elohim? That would be the Hebrew. Not since the first pages of Genesis have we heard reference to the Ruach, the spirit of Elohim, the spirit of God. Until now, as the Pharaoh of Egypt testifies of the character of Joseph, recognizing the Holy Spirit abiding in this Hebrew slave. Significant event, indeed. Other significant moments like this in Scripture record awakened understanding of unlikely converts at times of God's appointment. Centuries later, a Roman centurion would exclaim of Jesus, Truly, this was the Son of God. This his confession when he witnessed the rocks crying out, the earthquake splitting, the stones and the dead who were raised from the grave testified the power of Jesus even at his crucifixion. These events are recorded in Matthew 27, 52-54, and likewise in this record, a pagan recognizes the Spirit of God through his anointed and appointed servant. What was it about Joseph that caused a pagan king, an unbeliever, until these moments, to recognize the same power that hovered over the face of the waters at the very uh, first creation week in the first place? That Ruach of Elohim, the Spirit of God, hovered over the face of the deep, and soon the land was separated from the sea. And God spoke, and by His Spirit's power, light was created, and the earth was that was once without form and void took on the character of creation as the work of the Spirit was evident. Well, this same Spirit was recognized in Joseph. What was it about this man that caused Pharaoh to see that something was different about him? That this foreign prisoner was not an ordinary individual but instead the Ruach of God, the Spirit, dwelt within him. God himself, we can assume, had opened the spiritual eyes to see and the mouth of this king to proclaim the glories of the only one with the power to reveal his immutable word, the power to interpret dreams, and the power to grant saving wisdom in the face of catastrophe. The Lord had opened the eyes of the unbelieving king. Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, was staging a divine intervention through his suffering servant, Joseph, and the message had reached all the way to the top, all the way to the courts and the administration of this great king, Pharaoh, at the time. 
Joseph's testimony sets the stage for so much of God's word and works to come. We've marked some of them already, and today we'll mark more, Lord willing. And in this record, we behold the glories of these moments in light of further revelation in Scripture. And I pray that our hearts would be stirred by these means to appreciate the incredible weight and beauty of the Spirit of God evident in a time like this through a servant such as Joseph. So I have a heading for you in four points today for this second portion of Genesis 41. The heading is, The Spirit of God self-evident through the following. The Spirit of God is evident through Joseph's marriage in verse 45. Secondly, the Spirit of God is evident through the seven years of plenty and Joseph's stewardship call during this time. Thirdly, the Spirit of God is self-evident in the legacy of Joseph's sons, verses 50 through 52. And finally, we witness the Spirit of God in Joseph's administration during the seven years of famine, verses 53 through 57. First of all, the Spirit of God evident through Joseph's marriage. Before we touch on this in particular, it's interesting to note different shapes that we sometimes see the way a narrative or a portion of Scripture is structured. And here we kind of have a back and forth play. We have an account of Joseph's family life, which is fairly rare in Scripture, but we do have a verse given to the record of his marriage to Asenath, and then that's followed by seven years of plenty. Then we have an interjection with a reference to Joseph's two sons born, verses 50 and 52, followed by seven years of famine. So it goes family, ministry, or family administration, family administration. And I suggest here the intent of Moses in reporting these things is to display the evident spirit of God through the calling and ministry of Joseph and his family. First of all, his marriage. Where do we see the Spirit of God evident in these circumstances? Again, verse 45 records these interesting details. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Paneah. We referenced that in our sermon last week. And our, the best estimate as to the meaning would be for the Hebrew, revealer of secrets. But for the Egyptian, this name would mean preserver of life, savior, if you will, uh, of or the, uh, the provider or the savior in times of need. Preserver of the living. So Joseph's name uh, referred to, uh, came with reference, corresponded to his calling. But then something else happens. He is given a wife in marriage. And he, Pharaoh, gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Much can be gleaned, my argument is this morning, from this one verse. First of all, a prophecy is fulfilled. Back in Genesis 35, we had this record to Jacob. Kids, who was Joseph's dad? Does anyone know? Jacob. Jacob is correct. Jacob received a prophecy in chapter 35, included the following, verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Now we see the Lord is manifesting his almighty power and glory when a son of Jacob, even Joseph, is rising to the office of kingly rule. Joseph is serving as a magistrate and statesman, as second in command, and the ancient term for his position was the grand steward of all of Egypt, and the Egyptian word is vizier, or something to that effect. But this, I submit, was in fulfillment to prophecy. God would show his mighty power where a herdsman family would give birth to a kingly figure. And as Joseph was obedient and raising his sons, we come to find in the course of events that one of them, Joseph, becomes an influential king-like figure in the greatest empire of the known world. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, was the prophecy, and kings shall come from your own body. And in the case of Joseph, this certainly happened. Now, as the scholars have poured over all of the ancient documents in Egypt, I noticed this uh, interesting fact. A lot of times, names of officials in the courts would have a suffix. The ending would be significant, and it would indicate rank. So far, it was a suffix. Think of Potiphar. 
It was a suffix name or the ending of a name indicating an inferior or maybe average or lower ranking officer. So in the courts of Pharaoh, Potiphar, that far suffix, the ending of his name, would indicate a more ordinary rank. But then on this kind of spectrum of dignity and authority, we go up to just below the king, and the suffix there would be Pharaoh. So think of Potiphar, greater dignity and power still. And then there was the highest, and this would be Pharaoh. So far, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh. And this title was reserved only for the king. So as we look here in the record in verse, verse 45, we find Joseph being uh, assimilated or naturalized in his citizenship, as it were, incorporated into the life and the peoples of Egypt by being given in marriage to one of the Pharaoh class, if you will. That would be one who had a significant um, uh, designation of dignity and authority in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah and gave him in marriage uh, to, or gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Han. So this priestly figure, Potipharah, was a particularly dignified and authoritative individual, we can assume, just from this short record here. Joseph's father-in-law was, uh, was a royal and dignified individual. And the implications of this marriage were such that, if you will, the robe of Joseph's kingly authority was returned to him. We think of the whole scope and arc of Joseph's life, and in his humiliation, the robe that signaled the favor of his father and a future calling of authority and importance and king-like status, the robe of many colors, was stripped from him and then desecrated with the blood of an animal and used as an instrument of deception. And sort of lingering in this, narr in this narrative is, will that robe ever be found and ever return? Well, symbolically it is in our passage today. When Joseph arises to rule, this messianic ascendancy, it's attended by a reclothing. And they clothed him in garments of fine linen. They put a gold chain around his neck. And he's riding the second chariot and receives this signet ring. And all these effects, all of these uh, are symbols of authority, dignity, and of honor that, and respect that Joseph receives. So in this sense, symbolically, the robe of Joseph's regal calling is returned to him. It's returned to him in all these various ways, and as we see these details, he's actually even associated with the most important and powerful in all of Egypt through this ceremony, his coronation, if you will, and also his marriage to Asenath. Pretty interesting. And as a result of this marriage, I submit the following. This is my argument. That this marriage means that people are bowing. In fact, a people is bowing to Joseph. We see this in the record individually in verse 43. He made him, so Pharaoh makes Joseph ride in the second chariot, and they call, there's a retinue that goes before him, a group of individuals, you know, servants of the king, who call out to people, bow beneath. They're announcing that this man who is uh, in the presence in this parade before the people, the countrymen of Egypt, that he is important and deserves the, obe the obedience and the respect and the reverence of the people. And so the people in the presence of this exalted one, they bow before Joseph. But I submit to you that the family of Potiphar, priest of On, bows before Joseph as well. In other words, one might ask this question. Did Joseph's naturalization come by way of bowing to Egyptian gods and culture through marriage? Or does the narrative indicate the other way around? That a priest of On and his daughter laid aside their idolatry and their worship of the sun god On in deference and submission to Yahweh. And I submit to you the second is the case. And I believe the context bears that out. Think of it. Joseph was faithful to marriage at the cost of his own life when it came to adultery. Joseph refused the advances of Potiphar's wife when she seduced him and said, come, and he knew that there were consequences to be in the bad graces of this woman, and sure enough, it got him thrown in jail. Now this man in whom the Spirit of God abides, does it not stand to reason that he not only be faithful in, with regards to adultery and marriage, and be faith uh, and to recognize its terms in that sense, but also faithful in idolatry and marriage and recognize its terms in that sense. 
as well. Joseph was no idolater. And what that meant then, by extension, is that his wife left her gods. And the culture and the family surround uh, familiarity with the worship of the sun god Amon or Ra and left them aside and converted and became a true worshiper of Yahweh. That's what I believe is pictured here, at least the submission part. Joseph's integrity in the area of marriage is well testified to, and we can assume, I suggest, that this would be the case both in, with respect to adultery and also idolatry. Also, there's a phrase in this same verse that's interesting. It says, so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. That phrase indicates two things in the original language as far as I can tell. Number one, Joseph literally goes out to all of Egypt. So he becomes extremely influential. And his power and his presence are being made known as he literally travels in a chariot. And he's introducing his policies. He's instructing local stewards and lesser officials in the policies that preserve them through famine. So his presence and his administration and his policies become familiar to all of Egypt. But this also is a reference to his great influence. Joseph's word and his character and what he stood for and his legacy. And yes, his God, the one true God, Yahweh. His testimony went out over the land of Egypt. Causing pagan priests to turn, I suggest, from their wicked idolatry to the one true God. Perhaps we see this evidence even in his marriage. In Joseph's marriage, we see witness to a people bowing and turning from their idols and turning to the Lord. They must believe, if they were to believe the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, that they don't look, they don't look to Ra or On. They don't look to their cattle or their wheat gods or even the Nile to provide for them. No, they are organizing their life and society according to the word of God. It is the word of God. It is God himself, the one true God, that will give seven years of plenty to prepare them for the seven years of famine. In this sense, Joseph, I believe, is a forerunner of Jonah's ministry to Nineveh. As Jonah goes to Nineveh and announces the truth of the one true God, the message goes all the way to the top, converting even kings. And thus, a priest's daughter submitting to the prophet of Yahweh in marriage is an example of where the gospel can infiltrate even into kings and upper echelons of authority, of, of authorities and empires and so forth, the courts of mighty rulers. In this way, uh, in this example, by the way, this would be the opposite of circumstances forbidding cultural intermarriage in the law of God. Generally speaking, intermarriage was forbidden in God's law. Why? Because more often than not, intermarriage with other peoples around represented a compromise. I adopt a little bit of your gods and culture. You adopt perhaps a little bit of mine. And it's to water down and to syncretize and to compromise. But in the case of Joseph, I submit he stands as an example of quite the opposite. There are other marriages of this sort in scripture as well. Moses marries a Midianite. And she becomes alongside him a servant of the Lord in her submission to her husband. Uh, Obed, er, and I uh, think of Ruth and Boaz, for instance. And Boaz marries Obed, and she, an outsider as well, is redeemed through this union. It is a glorious picture, is it not? It is a picture, in fact, not just of other marriages to come, but of messianic parallels. Think of this. Jesus, in his ascension, his ascension culminates in a marriage as well. We've been noticing these parallels between the trajectory of Joseph's ascendancy, his exaltation, and he goes from receiving a signet ring to fine garments uh, after being recognized by Pharaoh as being filled with the Spirit. A gold chain is placed around his neck. The, a chariot is provided him. The call to bow before him goes forth. And then the culmination of this event, of his exaltation, is a marriage. And I don't think it's any mistake in Scripture that Jesus, the culmination of his ascension, culminates in a marriage as well. In Revelation 19.9, Jesus is pictured and with us, if you know him, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the ark of Jesus' condescension and then ascendancy culminates in his coronation, his receiving the rewards of his suffering, the fullness of the elect coming in, and then the celebration of all that he has accomplished in that great marriage ceremony, which indicates the covenant bond restored, 
between those who were once lost but now found, those once pagan, now repentant, those once uh, wicked and re rebels, now uh, called his own through the great power of the gospel. These are the messianic parables or parallels of the marriage of Joseph. Not only does Joseph's marriage parallel these unions I mentioned before, Moses and Zipporah, Ruth, Obed, and even uh, certain marriage provisions within the law, but I submit that Joseph's marriage pictures the gospel. Were we not pagans once, saints in this room? Was it not Christ who first loved us that moved us to love him back? Are we not the wives uh, of, of Christ, so to speak, and he, our bridegroom, were once unworthy and lost in sin? That is, that is correct. The church is the pagan bride sanctified by the covenant union to our Savior, bride, and groom, Jesus Christ. So we see this picture in Joseph's life, a pagan bride, a one-time worshiper of Ra, whose father was an important priest in this realm, turning from her associations to the one who, in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And then in the submissive act of marriage, joins with him in the calling to obey the Lord and to proclaim his word and truth through the vocation and stewardship and saving the world from catastrophe. And so Jesus has extended his love towards us, once pagans, once unbelievers, idol worshipers, and set his love upon us, though we did not deserve it. And we are, there, they, by these means, the bride of Christ, sanctified by that covenant union, who now join in his work of gospel proclamation and the growth of his kingdom, announcing his praises. We were lost, we were pagans, we once were idolaters, but now we're found. And we live and serve our Lord, our Master, our Bridegroom, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the body and bride of the Almighty. So this is Joseph's marriage and the Spirit of God evident through these details. Second major point, the Spirit of God evident, secondly, through seven years of plenty. As Joseph, as the record of his administration continues in verses 46 through 49, we have this. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. I wonder if you notice a striking parallel there as well. Perhaps it will be more clear if you turn with me to Luke chapter 3. So in Luke chapter 3, we have the record of Jesus' ministry and the events that preceded it. And the parallels between his and Joseph's experience are striking when we consider them in context. So where are we? Jesus has just been baptized, and now he's being called forth by the Spirit of God for what the Lord has appointed him to accomplish. In Luke chapter 3, um, now... In verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Note verse 23, very next verse. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. In the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of God is evident in and recognized upon Jesus Christ. At his baptism, descending upon him in bodily form. And then after this, he is called to his ministry at 30 years of age, and can't resist the detail, as the son of Joseph. In our text, there was a story that gave us an anticipation of these very events. And of course, it was the account of Joseph of old. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God evident in the interpretation, the prophecies of Joseph, interpreting Pharaoh's dream and counseling him in wisdom to prepare for famine was evident. And then immediately after this, Joseph is called to his own ministry at the exact same age. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Spirit of God is evident in the messianic ministry of Joseph, a precursor, a forerunner to Jesus. In Luke 24, 27, that's that famous passage where there's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in there, 
uh, Jesus, beginning with the prophets and the writings of Moses, reveals how the scriptures point to him. And I like to think of maybe a mile or two dedicated to Jesus' explanation of how Joseph points to himself. Imagine that conversation. Imagine that amazing revelation where Jesus would show these disciples how Joseph points to him. I wonder if details that we've been covering in our messages weren't revealed to those two on that road in terms similar to what we discovered here. One can only imagine so much more. Suffice it, suffice, suffice it to say that if the Spirit accompanies our understanding, reading, and proclamation of Scripture, those same kinds of revelation are available to us to see Christ in all Scripture, even the story of Joseph, and to witness the Spirit of God evident in his messianic ministry beginning at the same age of his Lord and Savior so many years later, and preceded by the evidence of the same Spirit of God and recognized by those around him. Now, in this seven years of plenty, the Spirit of God is also evident in providing an incredible harvest. Who's responsible for this? Well, it is the Lord. It has the word of the Lord had prophesied this, and now it was coming to pass. So be obvious and evident to all that the true sovereign, the Lord of creation, as providing for this people during these years of plenty. It says in verse 47, During the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly, and he, Joseph, gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in cities, put in every city the food of the fields around it. These seven years of plenty, the earth produced abundantly. What was the cause of this glorious and abundant great harvest food production? Well, this was according to the Word of God. The Word of God had been issued to the king. You can expect post-haste that there will be seven years of great and plentiful harvest. And so it happened. That is to say that these events were according to the Spirit of God. And this flew in the face of the idolatrous assumptions of the people. Remember, we've covered this before. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They had a cow goddess. And they worshipped grain, too. Why did they worship these things? Because for them, they acknowledged that these were their sources of life. If the Nile were to dry up, those reed grasses no longer clumped with the nourishing, you know, waters of life, couldn't feed the cattle. If the cattle weren't there, they would starve in due course. If the grain was not abundant, they would have nothing to sustain them, to bake bread with, to trade with, and so forth. Nothing to offer. And so, as these sources of life were recognized in their culture... They began to worship the Nile itself. They began to conceive of false gods. Later, the Israelites themselves were deceived by these kinds of notions. They worshipped a golden calf in the wilderness. Where did this inspiration come from? It came from the idolatrous notions of, the e of Egypt, that it was the cow in which we trust for our food. It is the grain in which we trust for our bread. It's the Nile which we trust for life itself. But no, something has changed. All of these were abandoned. There's no worship that is suffered, at least openly, in the cultural norms of Egypt at this time. But the abundance and the plentiful is according to the word of God. And so no one is to ascribe to the Nile, to the cow, or to grain, the power to supply the Egyptians. No, but recognized by the Pharaoh and by his authority all under him, the man in whom is the Spirit of God, who is spoken as a prophet of Yahweh, the one true God, it is Him and Him alone that is giving us this great harvest. God's Word is being fulfilled. And thirdly, under these seven years of plenty, we see the Spirit of God in giving Joseph and then through him executing great wisdom. Joseph begins his famine preparations and policies. He gathers up these food, this food over these seven years. He puts it in cities. Every city... And he put in every city the food of the fields around it. Verse 49, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. I cannot help but contrast this use of cities with the pagan notion of cities that we find so classically pictured in Babel. Ordinarily, if men are running the show in their sin, a city is a token, it's a kind of a benchmarker, an altar, an idol, a false sense of security. Man collects, through their collective efforts, seeks to declare their independence from God in their 
uh, in their city building. And this has been in the history of man from ancient times to today. But notice something changes under the administration of Joseph. The cities that were once places, central, you know, where worship would take place, religious centers for idolatry and self-indulgence, they now become storehouses for salvation. The cities become storehouses for the very means that God's word has provided to carry this land through seven years of drought and famine. The cities are redeemed. Organized according to the word of God, those places that once sang with the songs to raw, now you can hear the sound of the great abundant harvest filling the silos as they will one day hold out hope for the known world. And all of this is because of the, the great wisdom, the supernatural ability of Joseph in whom the spirit of God dwelt and now the cities are, be are becoming redeemed become storehouses of hope rather than centers of idolatry. The Spirit of God is evident at this time. Joseph's marriage is seven years of plenty. And then we have another interjection of a family note, verses 50 and 52. The Spirit of God evident through the legacy of Joseph's sons. Before the famine strikes, Joseph himself proves fruitful. Asenath bears him two children. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Often, as is, in the, as is the case in Scripture, names reflect the work of God, the testimony of him, and the legacy that the family represents. And in this case, with regards to Manasseh, Joseph recognizes that God has redeemed his hardships. When he says that the Lord has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house, this is not the kind of forgetfulness that is sort of like amnesia or denial. That he moves on and kind of scrubs it from his memory and from his psyche as some psychological, you know, trick to get him to get over the trauma he experienced. That's not the kind of forgetfulness that he's referencing here. But no, what he is saying is he's recognizing that God has redeemed his hardship. That the difficulty and the affliction that, all, that at one time only felt like pain, he now understands to have a purpose. And this took faith, of course, when Joseph was in anguish in prison and suffering unjustly at his brother's hands and sold to a foreign land as a slave. Will that pain have purpose? Yes, that pain is forgotten now in light of God's manifest power in exalting him and restoring unto him even more than he once had. Answering his prayers and fulfilling his promises and fulfilling Joseph's prophetic dreams of old, his hardships have now been sanctified. They've been redeemed. And his father's house he doesn't um, think of with the same kind of painful, lonely longing. But he now has increasing faith that he is in a position to save his father's house. As Joseph knows, around the corner will be seven years of famine. The Lord might well use those circumstances to reunite him with his brothers and lost father. The second name, Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Not only has God redeemed my hardships, but he has sovereignly made me fruitful. Sovereign fruit. Flourishing despite exile. And that theme is carried through the scriptures and it even applies to us. Though there are hardships and difficulties and periods of time in between now and our promised hope and future, the Lord ordains that his word is sufficient to cause his people to flourish in the meantime. You know, Jeremiah 29 11 is an often popular quoted verse that appears on calendars and index cards and inspirational memes and so forth. I know the plans I have for you, a future, and hope, and so forth. Usually the context is missed in our sort of cherry-picking, uh, proof-texting, you know, calendar-reading uh, theology. If you go back to Jeremiah 29, what you find is detailed instructions for exile, where the prophet is giving the people instructions on how to thrive and flourish, even though they're in a foreign land, 
under foreign rule, foreign gods all around them, idol worship going all around. They are to be, be a blessing to the city, plant vineyards, bear children, be fruitful in exile, and the Lord will use that to cause them to be a witness to their pagan, unbelieving neighbors. And God did that in profound and powerful ways, especially as Joseph's story sets up Daniel and his friends later. And the words of Jeremiah applied through those young men carry the message of gospel authority and power to the upper echelons of empires yet to come. This is a kind of sovereign fruit that Ephraim's name represents. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There's a bit of an exile status of our own experience that we can relate to. This world as yet has not been fully manifest, the kingdom of God, in such a way as to defeat every enemy, put down every authority, and nothing but peace and the reign of Christ, no more war and sin in our experience. We aren't quite there yet, but during this interim period, God, like Joseph, can make his church flourish in times of exile. So let us glean from Joseph's testimony that the Spirit of God, indwelling his people, can cause them to be fruitful even in times of darkness and oppression. And this is a powerful witness to him in spite of a wicked nation or surroundings and spreads the message of the gospel in ways we might least expect, even all the way to the top, the upper echelons of authority. It has happened before. It can and will happen again. This enduring legacy of Joseph's sons is carried forth through Scripture. Ephraim and Manasseh become important, especially Ephraim, as the identity of the covenant people of God associated with Jacob's sons and Joseph's sons on into the future. And by these means we see the Spirit of God evident in the testimony of Joseph. Let us close this morning with point number four. The Spirit of God evident through Joseph's marriage, seven years of plenty, Joseph's sons and their legacy, and finally the seven years of famine. Verses 53 through 57. The year, seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover... All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph is responsible in the wisdom inspired by the Spirit of God for a wilderness supply, a life-giving source in the midst of a time of wilderness. And this, of course, is pictured again in the Exodus during those 40 years where supernaturally provided manna kept the people alive a miraculous source of life in time of great need. No less miraculous was the wisdom, the foresight, and prophecy that Joseph received to store up for the time of famine. The wilderness of Egypt would become sustainable as a result of God speaking and the obedience of his servant. This speaks of a time to come when Jesus would feed thousands in his ministry. The miracles of Jesus often tell my kids this, they aren't just spectacular displays of power so that people can look and be amazed. They aren't something like a magician performing, you know, an amazing feat or stunt. They carry with them revelation. The, the uh, specific events and the things that Jesus does in his ministry speaks to ways that God has revealed himself all through the course of time. And when Jesus feeds by this miraculous power, the people without bread in the wilderness. He is demonstrating that he is the fulfillment of the wisdom of Joseph of old. In fact, wisdom personified the word made flesh. He is demonstrating that he is the bread of life, the manna in the wilderness. And next week at the table of the Lord, the fulfillment of these pictures is signified in his body and blood that is represented by the juice and bread. A sufficient source of life in the wilderness of sin. Because Jesus died for us, because his blood was spilt as a sufficient payment for the hell that we deserved, it's for these reasons that we have a sufficient source, the bread of life, the bread of eternal life. The wilderness of sin and the famine of the fall have plagued every single human being. But there is a son of Joseph 
Joseph literally, quite literally, Jesus quite literally, the son of Joseph to come, who will supply in the wilderness the sufficient source of spiritual life. Not just our daily bread, but the bread of life, the bread eternal. And next week, we, in the feast at the Lord's table, we picture this very thing. And so Joseph, the Spirit's work in this wilderness supply of sustenance is evident as well in symbolic and prefiguring form. Secondly, Joseph's, pro Joseph's prominence only increases. In times of great desperation, his administration, his rule is relied on all the more. The people cry out for a savior. And Pharaoh says, don't ask me, <laughs> in so many words, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Not just uh, by way of application. Let us pray for that in our land today. Let us pray that people would be so confounded by our economic plight, so confounded by our supply line challenges, so confounded by the international strife that we can't solve with diplomacy or war, that they would cry out for a savior and every politician in places of self-serving authority would say, don't ask me, ask Jesus Christ. That's what we need in our day. We need to have the plight that we feel, the stress and all the uncertainty that we're going through as a nation and even internationally. We need it to be redeemed so people stop putting their faith and trust in worshipers of on and of cattle and of wheat and the Nile. Instead, turn to the one true God. And of course, His Spirit-filled church has the gospel message when those who are hungry and desperate, they're re reaping the consequences of their idolatry and the famine of their affliction. May the gospel go forth and say, in Christ alone is preeminence and the bread of life. In symbolic form, Joseph's administration was recognized and acknowledged far and wide, eclipsing that of Pharaoh, eclipsing that of anyone else. The news is spreading. The name is getting out. And by that name, people are bowing and begging for food, and their need is supplied from the storehouses of spirit-filled wisdom. Finally, this is an international salvation. These seven years of famine picture a desperate event that is going to mean the death by starvation of the known world at the time. And as a picture of salvation, these overflowing storehouses in Egypt provide hope for all the nations. What a glorious picture. Is, are the resources of the gospel too slim, too few, to feed the coastlands and the distant countries and regions? The language and people groups even today know they're overflowing as storehouses of salvation for all who will turn from their sin and place their faith and their hope in the Lord. Today in the gospel, as it was in Joseph's day, in this case of physical grain, we see this picture. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. By this time, Joseph was well-respected and well-renowned within Egypt. But now the name of Joseph was going far beyond the borders and boundaries of this nation, even to all the nations of the world. It's not long, in the next chapter we'll see tell where the name reaches, although unbeknownst to them who exactly it is, all the way to Canaan. And soon we'll, we'll mark the salvation from famine of Jacob and his other sons. Turn with me in closing to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> all the earth is bowing the knee to Joseph, and from his sufficient supply they are spared from famine. All the earth will bow the knee once again to the Joseph, or son of Joseph, yet to come. And the arc of his saving work mirrors that of Joseph's life. We've mentioned it before, that great theme of Joseph's life, messianic ascension, condescending and then ascending, being lifted up and exalted to save. Notice the same shape in Jesus Christ, the Joseph to come, if you will, Again, in Philippians 2, this famous hymn, the Carmen Christi is sometimes called Hymn to Christ. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, listen to what Paul proclaims of our Savior, who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Remember last message, that turning point in the fortunes, the sheaf arising, the message from Pharaoh, go get that Hebrew slave from the pit. He is shaven, he's given clothes, and that the uh, humiliation turns to exaltation. And so it was in the grave of Jesus Christ, buried in a noble death as a rich man, and then on the third day, the resurrection power, the Spirit of God breathes life, and the stone is rolled away. The angels announce that he is risen, and the soldiers quake in fear. It says, verse 9 in Philippians 2, describing these events, Therefore God has highly exalted him, ascending him 40 days later before the right hand of the Father to receive us his inheritance, all the kingdoms of the earth we continue to read, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the fulfillment of the picture of Joseph. There was a time when the world in its desperation bowed the knee and the name of Joseph went to all the nations. And his storehouses were sufficient to satisfy the bread for everyone who would bow to him and his administration to receive salvation from this great hardship. But this was just a picture. And this was just a physical representation, a type and a shadow of the fulfillment to come. And today we announce the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of Joseph, the one before whom every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just as all the earth at one time bowed the knee to Joseph, a lowly, foreign, shepherd slave is exalted to save all those who would come to him for the bread of life, so there is coming a day of messianic ascension fulfilled in Jesus, where the once lowly, Born in a manger, incarnate one, who took upon our sin and died on Calvary, would rise from the grave and ascend to rule and reign, and will one day consummate his kingdom. Are you not thankful, saint, in the hearing of this message, that God has so moved, that that same spirit that abided in Joseph is in you to confess that name, to come here and to worship him, to bow your own knee? And voluntarily before him as he has changed your heart. Because there's coming a day where every knee will bow or it will be broken. Because the international authority of Jesus Christ is absolute and forever. But in the meantime, let us proclaim that his storehouses of salvation are overflowing to all who would come and believe. Let us close in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life, of eternal life. And you are a sufficient supply in the wilderness of sin and this intermediate time. And there's coming a day where your kingdom will be consummated in all its powerful glory. Lord, we long for that day in that marriage supper where we will join with all the saints' blood bought, worshiping praises without end to the Lamb that was worthy. The Lamb that is worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We pray that many will join us as you give us the ability and opportunity to proclaim this message to others. May we be faithful and filled with the Spirit as well as we seek to announce that Jesus Christ is the Savior to come, the Savior from sin, and the author and finisher of our salvation and the source of abundant eternal life. In His name we pray. Amen.